Good afternoon from Southern New Hampshire. This is PFG Live. Good morning, uh, everyone. Carl, good morning. Mr. Blodgett, good morning. And CJ Stevens, good morning. Thanks for checking in. As usual, because you guys are the first ones in, we need some uh, technical checks. It is uh, it's a beautiful day here in southern New Hampshire. I mean, a really beautiful day. It turned into uh, a clear, sunny day, which is very good for the solar electric production. <laughs> so uh, we are doing all sorts of things that need electricity while the sun is shining. Sounds good. I'll take that as a thumbs up from Kevin. Thank you, Mr. Blodgett. Outstanding. Well, it's been a great week. Uh, less shop time than uh, normal, whatever normal is. But my mom had her uh, 90th birthday party, and we were there last night. And I got to tell you, I can't keep up with the 90-year-olds. <laughs> I, was, I was exhausted at the end of the night. But it was a, a whole lot of fun. And uh, my aunt and uncle came in from out of town. And my sister, and we just had a we had a good time. So we uh, we ate too much and laughed just enough. So it was <laughs> it was perfect. So uh, get coming back to the shop today. I started uh, amalgamating all the all the questions I got this week and and uh, comments, and maybe we'll get some conversations going here. So let's see. Well, the first weather report's coming in. I guess I'll give mine. In southern New Hampshire here, it's 42 degrees Fahrenheit with winds northwest at 14. Sky's clear. Carl Tauber says it's clear and sunny and 48 degrees in the Rhode Island. And he says, happy birthday, Mom. Thank you, Carl. I'll pass it along. She might be watching. <laughs> uh... That's awesome. 48 down there. Holy cow. So I still, uh, you know, I get this question, can I see any snow? And this morning there were, I still saw clumps of snow. Let me take a quick peek out the window. Mm, I can't see any from the, uh, from the office window here, but there is definitely snow around town. So who knows, maybe by the end of the weekend it'll be gone. C.J. Stevens checks in with 58 degrees and sunny in East Tennessee. Thank you, sir. I appreciate it. Kevin reports 42 degrees and cloudy in Oregon today. We have the same temperature. How can that be? You're thousands of miles away. That's not possible. Well, merely cloudy in Oregon is a good day. That's excellent. Maybe you'll see the sun today. Who knows? Um, <laughs> I had to turn the heat on, uh, in the, in the, in the office, uh, last night I came in to do something and it was, it was cold in here. Shouldn't have been cold. The shop, I turned the shop heat on and it only used a little bit. So that's a good sign. Excellent. Well, uh, no. Okay. So Carl, Carl's calling me out, and, and correctly, one of the projects I had for this season is to put a camera on the snowometer. 
And just to prove the point, if you're watching the video, oops, here's the camera. I got a network camera. This one is, is an outside camera. And this was going to go on the, on the snowometer full time. And things got so busy that I did not... I did not get a chance to put the camera on the snowometer, but that remains a project. We will get that done. My goal is that next winter uh, you will be able to to tune in live to check on the snowometer, but that <laughs> that's coming. So I'm sorry I disappointed you, Carl. We missed a season with the, with the snowometer camera. So how's everybody doing today? What are you, are you doing projects in the shop or you're running around in the real world? So we have a few things on the on the agenda today. Um, C.J. Stevens says I need one of those cameras for my chickens. So I'll tell you a funny story about chickens and cameras. My good friends uh, Steve and Terry uh, used to live in Carlisle, Massachusetts, and they raised chickens. And um, they had. They started a, a, a webcam for their chickens. They started a chicken cam. Uh, was it chick? Uh, yeah, I think it was chicken cam. Anyway, so it became a huge hit. And this was early in the days of, of live streaming of stuff. And they ran it, I think, for five years. It might have been more. And finally, they had to, they had to uh, move on. Uh, especially because they moved from that location to a new location. They sold the house, bought a new house, and they decided not to keep the chickens going. But they kept streaming video <laughs> for a while after that. Uh, oh, it was HenCam. I'm sorry. I should have this in my head. Uh, hen, HenCam.com. You could check it out and tell me if you still see uh, if you still see stuff. But Terry was a, a prolific writer and uh, wrote about chicken keeping and it was it was a lot of fun but yes they had they had several cameras in the end they had several cameras going on the chickens so that's an awesome thing to do cj and i'm sure if you set up a monitor for your chickens they would appreciate watching some youtube videos about machining uh although if they became if a chicken became became a machinist would they make egg-shaped holes would they I think they would. So uh, we got we got a couple of requests to talk a little more about grinder coolant today, uh, and then we're going to follow up on some of the um, tool post improvements that I did and some of the results with that. Oh, CJ Stevens reports uh, they have over fifty chickens. That's awesome. Kevin says that's a lot of eggs. So my neighbors. Uh, Two doors down that away have chickens, and I enjoy some of those eggs, and it is much appreciated. We're very big egg fans here, so yeah, uh, there's nothing better than than the eggs from the from the chickens. <laughs> um, and then when they went on vacation, I would take care of the chickens every now and then, and that was kind of fun. The chickens don't write anymore; they don't call, they don't send cards, so they don't really appreciate it. So the uh, the topic of cool, of grinder coolant um, came up 
and I got a couple of questions, so I wanted to review that a little bit. Um, I went through three generations of grinders. So I went. I started with a Harig, uh, a manual Harig six twelve grinder, and there were two flavors of that grinder. Well, there were a couple of variants, but the main the main difference was uh, cable drive on the table or um, rack and pinion drive on the table. And I had the rack and pinion drive on the table. And the reason that was considered second fiddle was you can you can get as the pinion drove the rack you can get some uh, pressure upward and it could potentially put some uh, pattern in the work and i never i don't think i ever saw that maybe i wasn't you know grinding hard enough but that little machine was awesome it was fantastic and the, the, the additions I made to it. Oh, and, and also the downfeed had a, um, there was a version of the Harrig 612 that had an optional micro feed on the, on the hand wheel. The, the hand wheel for downfeed was way up high on the column on the right side. And then they, they had a, a mechanism that they added for, for fine control. I did not have that. Um, but that machine was really lovely, and and uh, it ground fantastically. I bought it as a uh, so-called rebuilt grinder from uh, a machinery tool dealer that I really liked, Rice Machinery down in Rhode Island, uh, not far from you, Carl, right? So that grinder was fantastic, and then and when I made the very first PFG stones and I started selling PFG stones, it was on that grinder. So there was no provisions for coolant on that grinder, um, which I, I added, and I'll show you that in a second. And I also added a vacuum for the uh, swarf. So that has been previously discussed, and, and I, I could show it another day because it's, it's sort of out of the, it's on the left side of the wheel. We're talking about the right side of the wheel. Um, so I'm going to put up a picture of, of what that grinder looked like. So if you're watching on video, uh, the, the picture I just put up shows the front wheel guard removed because I'm using a cup wheel and a Noga Mini Cool uh, to... To provide coolant so that worked out extremely well that was magged to the um, to the uh, spindle housing and then there were two versions there are two versions of the um, Noga mini cool there was you could either have one spigot coming out of it or two I always bought the the single I didn't I never bought the double. I, I bought two of these, one for the grinder, one for the bridge port. Uh, and then it, you can get that nozzle really close to the work, and you can dial in the mixture, air versus coolant. And that was very useful. And then you could dial in the overall volume, and that was very useful. And then it had a, a, a push-pull on-off valve, which, if you again, if you're looking at the video, it's in the... It's that black ball in the upper right corner. 
I found this to work extremely well. Um, the high volume of air and a little bit of coolant made for almost refrigeration. It really cooled very well. So if you're working on tool steels and such that uh, would be sensitive to to the temperature change, and certainly if you were looking to minimize any dimensional change from the heat, I thought it was quite effective. It used a relatively small amount of coolant for the amount of time it ran, and I used Cool Mist 78. So Cool Mist 78 is the light duty version of the Cool Mist coolants. Um, and then I think 77 was the heavy duty version. So I used 77 on the bridge port, 78 on the grinder. And then I had a one gallon. Actually, I didn't even have one gallon. I had a I had an Ovaltine container, which I think is four cups or something. I, I had an Ovaltine container, which was my reservoir, and I had one in standby. And it took a while to empty it. So that was pretty nice. That worked really well. And I highly recommend if you have a grinder, uh, if you have a manual grinder or an automatic grinder and you don't have any form of coolant, the Noga Mini Cool coupled with Cool Mist 77 was an outstanding solution. I think I copied that from Stan Zinkowski at Bar Z Industrial. Go check out his, uh, his YouTube channel. It's uh, Shaden, Shaden H... Somebody, somebody in the chat room, maybe you could, you could get me uh, Stan's YouTube channel. But just do a do a search on Barzi Industrial uh, on YouTube, and I think he was the guy that I first saw using uh, the Noga Mini Cool on the grinder. So that was a big win. Um, let's see. Carl asks, does anyone use oil-based coolant for grinding? Fire risk must be nasty. On some of the big enclosed grinders, they absolutely use oil. Um, and I don't know much about those grinders. And I don't know much about using oil for the grinder. So I know it is done, but I don't use it. So in machines that do use oil, I know that they have certain fire uh, mitigation systems uh, John Grimsmo talks about what, what's in his Tornos Swiss lathe because he uses oil in there. And I believe they use a pressurized uh, plastic tube that runs through the work area. And the plastic is a low temperature melting plastic. So if a fire breaks out, it melts that, that plastic tube and in comes usually an inert gas to um, kill the fire. So I have not had experience with that at all. Uh, and of course, getting back to this Noga Mini Cool, if you're running Cool Mist, it's a water-based coolant. You're diluting it one part to 32. Um, so that, it, that doesn't apply here. There's no fire risk. So that was, the, that was the first coolant system I used on a grinder. And actually, it was the first coolant system I used um, on the Bridgeport. And that worked really well. Uh, actually, I, I take it back. <laughs> the first coolant I used on the grinder was this. It was a can of WD-40. <laughs> so uh, 
this is a good way to get some coolant going on a grind if you have to and you don't have anything else. You grab your can of WD-40 and you hose down the work and maybe, you know, add some as you go. Totally reasonable. Totally fine thing to do. And I believe that was the first uh, type of coolant I used on the grinder. When I finally got the... Uh, got my grinding foo up to the point where I was ready to do my chuck. And and actually, and I recommend this, if you buy a grinder, okay, I would I would start grinding without having ground the chuck until you know what you're doing. Because it's harder to grind the chuck than it is to, to grind everything else. So once I got that going, I read somewhere that a really good way to grind the chuck was with this coolant, called Crisco, all vegetable. So uh, I would put Crisco, on, a light coating of Crisco on the chuck and then do a pass on the chuck and then, and then repeat, rinse and repeat. And that worked out really well, especially for grinding the chuck. Grinding the chuck is a particular problem because you're grinding soft materials and the heat input is, is particularly undesirable. So the Crisco worked worked pretty well. Uh, see my video on grinding the mag chuck. Of course, that was like a luxury because I was doing it on the Okamoto with full flood coolant. Don't the sparks light the kerosene in WD forty? Uh, no, I never had uh, I never had an issue with that. Um, I don't think you need to worry about that. Um, first of all. I know people say there's kerosene in WD-40. That's not exactly true. Um, I did research, you know, what the constituents of WD-40 are, which, of course, is somewhat of a trade secret. Um, but it, it's not super uh, flammable. C.J. Stevens says, bacon grease? I would advocate for bacon grease, absolutely. <laughs> I don't think it's going to be much different than using Crisco, and I didn't believe the Crisco until I saw it work, and it it did a pretty good job. And you might as well it might as well smell good while you do it. So, sure, I would use bacon grease, chicken schmaltz. Why not? Uh, anyway, that's what you do when when you when you have to when you got to do it. That's what you do. So uh, that's that's kind of how I lived on the first grinder is mostly with the Noga Mini Cool. I thought the Noga Mini Cool did a stupendous job. Uh, the second grinder was the Brown and Sharp 618. And when I bought that, it had this, <laughs> this literal pipe uh, that went uh, down to the wheel and the not shown in this photo is the end of the pipe was smashed flat, so it had sort of that long, thin um, uh, hole. Carl says there's no trans fatty acids in bacon grease. That's that is true, and I would I would venture to say that that is healthier than Crisco. Probably WD forty is healthier than Crisco, but I won't dwell on that. So uh, the. The 618 had this literal pipe leading down to the wheel. It was smashed at the end. Super simple. Um, and then it had a coolant pump in the coolant tank that did a fine job of delivering more coolant than you could possibly want. So once you start pumping flood coolant, the issue is containment. 
and the 618 MicroMaster was pretty good uh, for that in that respect. Um, and I, I did have a uh, a cover in the front. It was a little messy sometimes, but it, it did a good job. It, also important to have a valve on that so you could use it enough flood cooling, but not so much that it gets everywhere. And it was, you know, it was in uh, using that very rudimentary system, which is pretty common, I think, in a lot of uh, in a lot of installations. That I started to to think it's it's planted the seeds for the design of the Nas, which was you know a focused uh, focused stream of coolant. Um, and you know you can go check out the website at at uh, Nas N O Z Nas .gg, and you could learn about that. But that's a super simple uh, application for the coolant. Now that coolant was uh, QualiChem. 250, I guess they call it Extreme Cut 250 or XC 250, uh, and they call out three and a half percent concentration. And of course, you, if you've been listening to me for a while, you know that that was distilled water. That worked really well, and that was my first flood cooling. Um, and then finally, the third uh, generation of grinder for me was the Okamoto and the Okamoto has uh, a similar system where there's a, there's a, a pipe, a hose that comes in and then it has a little section of lock line. And then it came with a very simple, you know, lock line schnozzle. And then I developed the Nas and now I, once I developed the Nas, all of my grinding is done with the Nas and I, um, this is not specifically a commercial for the Nas, but the Nas works fantastically as far as cooling the grinding area and also keeping the wheel clean because it has a vector toward, you know, from either side of the wheel. And it works fantastically well. The Okamoto had much better splash control and, and liquid control. So today it works fantastically well I don't have to worry about I mean I do get some drips every now and then but I don't have to worry about a, a mess and I'm using full throttle flood coolant as much as the machine will deliver and that works out great so in the picture if you're watching the video in the picture you can see the hose coming over the back uh, you can't quite see the Nas in this picture which is you know my downfall here because I should be showing you big pictures of the Nas. But if you go to the website, you'll see the bit, the picture of how the Nas is situated. And that's my current situation. And that continues to be QualiChem 250, 3.5%. And I do check it. I, I do check the coolant concentration and I do add distilled water. Now, in my, in my experience, you will lose water and not nearly as much uh, of the coolant oil uh, or the coolant chemistry. So you tend to replenish with water. Uh, and then I would say maybe once a month, I have to add a little bit of coolant concentrate to bring it back up to the 3.5%. And that, and that works uh, pretty well. So it's a, we, it, Oh, one one thing that happened is when I got the Okamoto, it comes with a plastic, a plexiglass front 
that you can lift out, except it's way undersized for for making a, a true mess like I like I'm making, and um, I I redesigned that piece of plexiglass and I custom designed it and I've shown that before. Uh, so those those are the that's kind of the evolution of my coolant process. Uh, once I went to went from the cool mist. Oh, I want to show you one more picture about the cool mist. On the uh, on the Harig, there was a threaded a pipe thread output for the drain for the table, and I ended up putting a six inch piece of pipe on it, and then a piece of PVC, as shown in the picture if you're watching the video, and it went right into an Ovaltine container. So any any drippage that started flowing off the table would go into the Ovaltine container. I could tell you I never had to empty the Ovaltine container. If it got a little bit of coolant in it, it eventually dried up and it was it was not a problem. But that was a nice addition to the to the um to the Harrig. Uh Carl asks, are you still doing temperature control? I am now doing temperature control. Of course, that's a separate topic, but absolutely. So uh, presently on the on the Okamoto, we're doing uh, yes, we're doing coolant temperature control because typically, of course, it's been winter time. The coolant is is colder than the chuck and the work. So what I decided to do is heat the coolant to sixty eight degrees Fahrenheit, heat the room to sixty eight degrees Fahrenheit. And that's the extent of my thermal control. And that gets that gets me within, you know, a few degrees. Everything's within a few degrees of each other. And that's been working spectacularly well. Uh, mostly uh, that helps with, you know, precision um, and repeatability. And it's been, it's been fantastic. So, yes, I'm using an 800-watt heater in the coolant tank, which is like, 30 something gallons and uh, when I go into grind I could turn it on now the other the other interesting thing seeing as you brought it up the coolant the, the, the coolant heating system is on a remote control I can go open up my phone go to an app it uses the Lutron app and I have a uh, an outlet control and I can turn on the heater you know before I could turn on the heater and I could turn on the shop heat remotely so if i say hey i'm going to be in the shop you know in an hour or two hours or whatever i could go turn both of those things on and everything starts stabilizing um so yes i am absolutely doing uh, temperature control so that's the story on uh on grinder coolant happy to answer any questions the other half of the grinder coolant equation of course is filtering so when you're using the noga mini cool you're not recycling the coolant. You don't have to think about it. As soon as I went to the Brown and Sharp, that had uh, a settling tank, and then I fixed a uh, uh, a water a water filter, a whole house water filter, and that's what I was using for for that setup as my as my coolant filter, and that worked pretty good. And I, that had to get changed out every now and then. It wasn't. It was the it was the big one. It was the twenty inch. Uh, whole house f cylindrical filter um, 
and that was just part of our normal routine is changing that out. And then finally on the Okamoto, we have the continuous band paper filter, which I love, and then a subsequent um, 30 micron filter from MSC Filtration. And I want to give them a shout out. So they're down in, I think they're out of Connecticut. And when I bought my Okamoto, my dealer, my Okamoto dealer is in Connecticut. And, and one of the options that he sold me on the machine was this coolant filter. Well, MSC filtration, not to be confused with the industrial catalog, by the way, MSC filtration uh, sells this very beefy, looks like it came off a battleship, uh, filter housing with these very uh, beefy filters. And that's what I'm running now before, before it hits the nozzle. We started with a, this is an interesting point. We started with a five micron filter and eventually I clogged the five micron filter. Um, so I decided we would, we would drop down and now we're using a 30 micron filter and it works very, very nicely. Carl wants to know more about the continuous band filter. So the way the continuous band filter works is there's a roll of this paper filter material and it too comes in different flavors. I believe this is rated as also 30 micron, not a hundred percent sure. And the paper comes off of the roll and goes, I'm going to turn off the, uh, the slides here cause they're not applicable. The paper comes off the roll and it hits this like, uh, conveyor belt, except the conveyor belt is made out of uh, wire, like the, this, almost like a woven wire structure, except that it's, it's got a, a shape to it. So it's, it's got like a, a trough shape to it. And also as, as this, this conveyor belt goes, goes first goes down and then it comes back up before it goes around to continue its, its conveyance. So it makes like a little, uh, a little bowl, like a little pond in the shape of the paper. So as the coolant is coming off of the table and it cleverly gets dumped into, uh, you know, back into the, the, the paper filter, it, it filters through this little pond area. There is a float valve, very similar to the float valve in your toilet. Uh, and the float valve sits in, uh, in there and if, if it starts clogging up, the float valve goes up and as soon as the flo float valve hits the, uh, the threshold, it will, uh, it will turn on the conveyor belt and move a clean piece of uh, a filter into place. Um, and then of course the, the liquid starts going through the filter and the float valve returns to, to normal. So it's totally hands-off. It uses far less uh, paper filter material than I thought it would, but it uses it and it does a great job. So the consumables there are the roll of filter paper and they're not that expensive. So I bought, I bought three more rolls or four more rolls. They're not very expensive and now they're sitting on the rack. So when I run out, I just pop a new one in. Uh, very simple to use.
so between that uh, continuous filter and the and the filter in in the cylindrical filter housing, that is the sum total of my um, my coolant filtering before it hits the the uh, the nozzle. I will add one more thing about my coolant system is that uh, you know when you turn off the coolant, you get this annoying dribble of of coolant that's left in the pipes and maybe even that you know unprimes your pump. So I put a check valve in. It was a brass check valve. You can't quite see it. Let me show you if you, again, if you're watching the video, I'll show you what I'm talking about. Um, you could you can't quite see it but where the where the hose ends there's a little brass piece and that brass piece is a cool is a check valve so it's a spring loaded check valve and then the only thing forward of the check valve is the lock line which is about 6 or 8 inches long and then the nozzle so when the pressure stops from the pump that check valve closes and you only get a couple of drops um, coming out of the nose. And that works really good. So I hope that paints the picture. Um, now, the question is, should you use coolant when you're grinding? And the answer is, as far as I'm concerned, is absolutely. Uh, there's almost no time that I could think of where you would specifically not want to use coolant. Uh, so there you go. Use, use coolant. If you, if you can't use a traditional coolant or you can't use the Noga mini cool, get yourself a can of WD-40 or go to the kitchen and find the Crisco. You shouldn't be eating this stuff. You just should be using it as, uh, as coolant. So there you go. That's the coolant situation. Um, if there's any final questions on coolant, I'll try to sneak them in. <laughs> uh, now, uh, what else is on, on the docket here? In PFG Stone news, we got some interesting orders this week. We got our first order from the country of Finland. Thank you very much. That order went out. We also got a, an order from a uh, manned spacecraft company. Thank you very much for your business. Um, there's a project that's been cooking with uh, Mr. Blodgett, and I've I sent him a quick message. I ordered a piece of A2 tool steel. I ordered inch and a half rod, uh, three feet long. So we have plenty, plenty of round stock to mess with. And of course, having gone through the, the cutoff tool escapades of the last couple of weeks, we are ready to slice that guy up into, uh, into thick salami slices for that project. Stay tuned. We will show you that. Um, when we were doing the titanium project, I don't think I reported the, the actual horsepower required in the cut. So we had a cutoff tool going into a two inch diameter rod of titanium and it was reading 43% spindle load, 43% spindle load on a seven and a half horsepower motor. And then applying efficiencies like, okay, maybe you don't get all that power to the spindle. I'm here to tell you that was a two horsepower cut, which translates to about 1500 watts in the cut or maybe 1.5 kilowatts 
in the cut. So that's what that cutoff tool was doing. <laughs> so that was pretty, you know, that explains a lot of the excitement. That titanium is not messing around. Uh, but it, it got under control. And that was that was uh, that was great. So I think we have a new we have a new cutoff technology. Uh, I, for some people, it's old. Uh, you know, they've been using these ISGAR tools for a long time. For me, it's pretty new. Let's see. Um, oh, also uh, with respect to tool post videos, you know, YouTube in its in its algorithm decided that I needed to see some tool post videos. There are two tool post videos which I've watched that I strongly recommend. One, of course, is Robin Renzetti's video where he gets rid of the uh, compound on his lathe and he builds a solid tool post, and that's awesome. And then following that, chronologically, Silos Garage uh, did a did a tool post video on, on a tool post design that I thought was also very sweet. Nice job. Uh, he built a tool, a solid tool post out of ductile iron, but he used um, bearing balls in a circle to to uh, locate the tool post. And I I will I really suggest you go uh, follow Silos Garage. Um, and that was a really nice job. <laughs> Speaking of CJ Stevens says, I, I will quote him. He says, Hey guys, I know he won't say it, so I will. Hit that like button before you forget. Speaking of algorithms, yes, thank you very much. Uh, hit the like and the subscribe and all of that kind of stuff. And no, I don't have a Patreon, but if you don't have PFG stones, what are, what are you even doing? Go to the link up here, up, up, up there pfgstones.com uh, let's see what else um, we talked about coolants excellent oh uh, so I got a very very nice uh, shout out from a knife maker uh, this past week um, Elshowitz Knives uh, he, he's a new customer thank you very much for the shout out but he also reminded me of of, a, a, of something that he started doing he thought it was a good idea but it was a bad idea, and we had a little conversation about it. And I'll summarize it by saying, uh, and this sounds a lot like our lapping discussions with the conditioning lap and the working lap. When you use PFG stones, you're conditioning the stones together. And in lapping, we, we identify a, one of the two identical laps as being the conditioning lap. And that's for a reason. That's, that's because... We are literally shaping the laps by which one is on top and which one is on the bottom because we want to control the shape. And I've made the claim before that you don't use a perfectly flat lap to get a perfectly flat surface. So you actually need the control to, to bring the, the working lap either into concavity or convexity. Oh, yeah. Thanks. Yeah, before we leave tool posts, thank you very much. Uh, Carl Tauber reminds me that uh, cutting-edge engineering, and I don't think I've seen his uh, video, and Adam Booth. 
have done tool post mods. So Adam did a really uh, good job on his American Pacemaker tool post. Um, good job, Adam. Uh, and that is extremely similar to the experience I just went through uh, on the TL1 in that he replaced the he replaced his T-nut with a uh, custom part and it had some really nice features. And that's, I, I didn't go that far, and we'll talk about that in a minute because that's that topic is coming up. But a Adam also contributed to the art of of uh, tightening up your tool posts. So thank you very much, Carl, for that. So getting back to the, the, the PFG stones and how it relates to laps. So we want the capability of creating a convex or, or concave surface on our laps. Remember, we're dealing with nanometers uh, in order to control our work which we then measure to see how we're doing however in the in the case of pfg stones we pretty much want them flat so if you read the um if you read the product information page which is pfg.gg or pfgstones.com either one will take you right to the to that page uh, I say that you should randomize which stone is the conditioning stone and which stone is the working stone. And you should also randomize how, you know, which sides you're putting up against uh, the other one and how they're rotated. And, and by just changing it up, you are distributing the wear and you're maintaining flatness. If you, so uh, the, the, the challenge was if you choose one stone and say, that's my conditioning stone, and I'm going to rub the stone I'm using on top of it all the time. Now you're asking for it, right? You're you're always wearing one stone on on the work pieces, and you are tending toward a concavity, to a concave surface on that stone. No, 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 no. For PFG stones, you want to truly randomize it. Also, there's nothing wrong with putting the brown or coarse side on the red or fine side and conditioning that no problem so change it up spread it out spread the love and that's the right thing to do so we had this we, we privately had that conversation and he was he he uh, was appreciative of it and uh, made an adjustment to his workflow so i just wanted to share that information that that is best practice okay for pfg stones um, rotate the stones. That's our new hit single. Rotate the stones. There was some talk on uh, on Instagram about actually a uh, uh, machine shop ten double e, uh, who's down south at a technical school on the river, was talking about epoxy floors, and he wants to do a white epoxy floor. And if anybody has any specific wisdom on that send send a message over to uh machine shop uh sorry uh, yeah machine shop 10 double e uh, i know that grimsmo john grimsmo up at grimsmo knives has a white epoxy floor and he loves it and it it creates a really nice clean environment and i think it's i think it's cool also uh aaron aaron walla was talking about floor colors we were interacting with that 
same thing you know picking 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 a floor coating and picking a floor color sounds trivial right but uh, you have to make a decision. If you do something like white epoxy, you will see every speck of dirt. You might want to see every speck of dirt, especially if you're trying to keep a super clean environment. Um, I just found it interesting how both of them were starting to talk about floor coatings this week. Um, my floor coating is is a probably a Home Depot-ish floor paint uh, that was done by a previous owner with the, with the flex in it you know the color flex in it and it's fine i love it and uh it's not as rugged as as an epoxy coating let's see a- another topic that came up this week is uh 3d printers so john saunders published a video on uh, nyc cnc youtube channel in which he discusses that they got a new printer called a Bamboo, B-A-M-B-U, and it is a multi-filament-capable printer um, that is in a very stiff frame configuration, which is excellent. It does all sorts of interesting feedback for measuring the first layer you know, properties, measuring the bed level, but also measuring the work using LIDAR, allegedly. Uh-oh, we're gonna we're about to learn something new from Kevin. So let me just finish this topic and then I'm gonna ask you what you mean, Kevin. Uh, so <laughs> K Bonk says he loves his wood floor till he drops a three millimeter screw. Yeah. But you know what? If all you got is a wood floor, that's what you got. So uh, it, it, that's that's funny. Um, so anyway, go go watch uh, John Saunders' uh, video on NYC CNC about this new bamboo printer. It sounds really interesting. And between its very stiff construction and its its feedback mechanisms, as far as using, and I, I may be misspeaking here, but I think they're using lidar to to observe what's going on in the, in the cavity. Plus it's an enclosed space, right? It's an enclosure. So they got temperature control. Uh, the thing flies, it moves very quickly and it is trying to be the, it just works printer. And so far I'm hearing good things. I went to uh, MHM machining, Adam Brunette, and I asked him about what he thought because he is an expert in uh, 3D printing, and he's building this magnificent, huge uh, 3D printer. I mean, really huge. I won't steal his thunder, but stay tuned. Um, and he thought it was a, a solid machine also. So I have no, I've never had my hands on it. I probably am not going to be writing a check for one, but it sure does look interesting. Uh, and it is allegedly designed and built by the same folks that do the DJI drone. Again, no no experience with that, but it sounds like this printer is is one to watch. Kevin Blodgett says, did you see the new Prusa upgrade? So do you mean upgrade or do you mean um, the new Prusa? Because I know that Prusa came out with a uh, soon to arrive, not 
ready for ordering, I, I believe. Uh, multi-filament, multi-head, tool-changing printer. And in fact, uh, John Saunders had one on order. He, he, he paid for the um, pre-order. But I'm, I'm not sure he kept it. We'll, we'll see. Uh, oh, so no, this is news to me and I should know. They, how come nobody called me? Uh, Kevin says there's a new Mark IV. There's a new Prusa Mark IV. So, but they have an upgrade kit for the Mark III. I will check it out. Tell, tell us what's uh, new about it. K-Bonk says, is it open source software? Uh, I don't know. And I assume you mean the DJI uh, or the uh, the Bamboo. I'm kind of guessing it's not, but I don't. I honestly don't know. Carl says there's another technology for floors besides epoxy that is excellent, and he is going to research it for us, aren't you, Carl? <laughs> Let us know. Um, okay, well, I guess I have homework. Part of my homework today is to research the Prusa Mark IV. And if if it's worth it, I may have to upgrade my three Prusas because I have three Prusa Mark III's. And I remember when they upgraded the the extruder, I did do the upgrade. That's when I only owned one of them. And then I bought two more printers. I will now read from, uh, from Mr. Blodgett quoting Prusa. He says, the Mark IV will consistently deliver a perfect, smooth first layer thanks to the load cell sensor. No manual adjustments needed. The next-gen extruder, the Nextruder, and 32-bit connected platform provide many quality-of-life improvements like remote printing, quick-swap nozzles, and customizable UI with one-click printing option. This sounds pretty interesting. Um, I'm, I'm thinking about, well, I'll have to do a little research to see if I want to risk, uh, risk an upgrade or just buy another printer. We'll see. But that sounds pretty interesting. It is on my homework list. It's even getting highlighted. You know what that means. That means I consider that a high priority. Thank you, Kevin. I appreciate it. We will learn more about that. It's amazing how, you know, most of what we do is is machining, but the 3D printing is now becoming very important to us. For me, the 3D printing has been how I make all the trays for the PFG stones, but also... I make fixtures. Um, I make organization tools. It's amazing. Oh, Wes, you decided to wake up. Did your alarm clock uh, break or something? What's what's going on here, dude? You'll have to check the others for the for the class notes and make sure you don't miss any assignments. Um, we're just starting trouble, Wes. That's all. And you're welcome to start trouble as soon as you find some trouble to start. So the 3D printer known as the bamboo is is uh, worth keeping an eyeball on and also the Prusa now Mark IV. Um, did they actually launch? K-Bach asks, didn't the first 3D printed rocket just launch? I think they did. They had like a two-minute mission or something. Uh, but that's interesting. 
it wasn't too interesting. I mean, we make stuff with 3D printers all the time. Why shouldn't a rocket be made with 3D printers? I thought that was sort of a little bit, a little bit of an overreach. But Wes says he had adulting to do. Listen, adulting is overrated, and you can quote me on that. <laughs> So Kevin says they launched, made it past max Q, and then the second stage did not light. So that would be called a 3D printed javelin, I believe. And Kevin says the methylox flame looked amazing. I assume that's methanol and oxygen, huh? Uh, that's what it sounds like. Pretty cool. Pretty neat. Oh, um, if you use, uh, but the second stage didn't light. 3D printed javelin, that's something. Uh, if you use methanol in your shop, I would like to encourage you to use a respirator uh, if you do it a lot. I'm not going to get into the details, but I do use methanol in inside of denatured alcohol. And I use that for cleaning uh cleaning stones and I, I I've always used a uh, a respirator designed for organics but methanol is one of the things that you want to absolutely be wearing a respirator for it's not like a strong toxic thing but over time it can accumulate and we don't want that so I do use a respirator be safe out there people um, let's see, we, we covered that. I think I told you about that and we covered that. So in the, in the teaser for this episode, I used the terms insufficient adequacy <laughs> and underappreciated overconstraint who I played bass for back in the eighties. Um, so the tool post improvements led me to, you know, use two pins to locate the tool post and prevent rotation. And, it, and we were fighting the play in that system. Now, if you go back to that video, you'll note that the top of my T-nut, K-Bonk says, anyone know where I can get a long flute 16th inch drill looking for one inch plus? What about a PC board drill, buddy? Art, uh, Wes says it was a 3D printed pressure vessel, three meters in diameter, and most of the rocket's engines were 3D printed. Cool. Um, so with respect, Carl, uh, denatured alcohol is not just ethanol because otherwise it would be called ethanol. So denatured alcohol starts as ethanol and then... They put crap in it so that it can't be ingested. <laughs> That's what makes it denatured. So when I go to the hardware store and I buy denatured alcohol from Clean Strip, I think, you know, the blue, the blue cans, um, I researched what they were sticking in that. And it can be up to 50% methanol. Uh, and that is the concern. So typically, if you take if you take uh, ethanol and you just add, 
I, I don't know what the rules are to call it denatured. Um, but I, okay, I'll take it as homework. Um, but I, I went through this whole process and that's why I bring it up. Uh, so it was, in the stuff I bought, it was remarkable that they listed it as 50-50 ethanol, methanol. Um, so just read the label. I, I promise to read the label and I will publish uh, to Instagram and then I'll have notes for next week on what I found. But I, I did this a long time ago. Uh, Kevin says, we use denatured alcohol on Q-tips a lot or in a cloth. Does your sprayer atomize? Um, good question. So I use denatured alcohol both in a bowl, okay, uh, for submersion, and I also use denatured alcohol in my sprayer. And does it atomize? I'm going to say it has, to some extent, yes. So I, I, I don't know precisely. So Carl says, in any case, I recommend isopropanol. Yes. And really, Kevin says the SDS, thank you, Kevin. Kevin says the SDS, is that for the uh, clean strip brand? Is that what you found? Uh, the SDS says 40 to 60% methanol. Yeah, that's what I remember. Exactly. The reason we're not using isopropanol, and, and I use isopropyl alcohol in in the 3D printing lab uh, because of resin printing. And to be honest, it's all about cost. So I'm using the denatured alcohol in the shop because it's cheap. There you go. CJ Stevens says, I spray denatured alcohol to clean prepped surfaces before powder coating. There you go. Um, so yeah, they they I think they have some latitude as to what they use to go from ethanol to denatured alcohol. And you'll probably find quite a wide variation on what that means. Yeah, I I would absolutely wear your respirator, you know, anytime you, you, you do it. Now I, I'm guilty of not wearing a respirator for isopropyl alcohol. But I did check check on it, and I did read about it, and I did convince myself that that was not a big risk. But methanol definitely is something you want to wear the respirator for. And I, too, uh, I actually added a respirator uh, down in the 3D printing lab, specifically because when I am working with a lot of uh, isopropyl alcohol, I'll wear a respirator there, too. It doesn't hurt. So now I have two... Uh, organics respirators in play, one in the in the 3D printing lab and one in the shop. So we want to just uh, be safe out there. So getting back to the tool post, uh, one thing that I remember, I didn't go back and check, but I remember from Adam Booth's uh, re-engineering of his tool post was putting in that insert and and bringing the surface of the of the T nut up, you know, pretty high. Um, and if you look at the pictures that I posted, the top of the T nut, which I did not uh, otherwise modify, to the bottom of the tool post 
which is sitting on the toolbar, there's a significant gap there. And it will take whatever the play is in the pins and it will sort of magnify it. So there's a couple of ways to deal with that. One is to rebuild the T-nut so that that surface comes right up to a, a couple of thousandths um, of, of the tool post. And that will improve that will improve the fit. But again, I was trying to get away from re-engineering the T-nut. So what I've decided to do, as was hinted on the slide, on the teaser slide for this episode, was get ready to drill the tool block itself for the two holes that are 90 degrees out from the two holes that I, I did engage with the pins. So stay tuned. You'll see. Uh, I'm going to be pulling the tool block, uh, the tooling, the tool, yeah, the tool block off the lathe again. We're going to locate and drill two 10 millimeter holes, and the big puzzle there is going to be what allowances we're going to use. So how how the pins are going to fit. Not a huge, uh, not a huge high technology solution but it's definitely going to be an improvement over the improvement that we just made. <laughs> and I could live with that improvement for quite a while. Right. Carl Tauber correctly points out that there are multiple types of denatured alcohol. The idea is to make it non-potable, not lethal. Right. And, and you know, methanol is not lethal, but I don't want to be breathing a lot of it. Hey, Microwave One is live from the Queen Mary. Are you really on the Queen Mary? That is amazing. So that's, that's my my buddy Mike, uh, who is a ham radio uh, guy and has a great YouTube channel called Microwave One. M-I-K-R-O. Microwave Digit One. Hi, guy. Take some uh, take some pictures. I want to see I want to see your your laptop with. Uh, <laughs> with the, with us on it. Um, the problem with... Me- oh, Carl says the problem with methanol is that it is not unpleasant to drink. And I will add, shortly before your liver explodes. Yeah, that is a problem. Well, I will go back and do some more reading and make sure that we're not saying anything stupid here. But certainly er- uh, uh, erring, erring on the safe side is not a bad thing. Yes, Carl is delivering more good news. He says, it is lethal, but if it doesn't kill you, it will blind you. Nice. I'm going to wear my respirator and take a sip of tea. By the way, this is this tea here is uh, definitely has no methanol in it. Though I won't swear about the ethanol content. Although I'm pretty sure it doesn't have any ethanol either. So uh, stay tuned for further uh, tool post improvements. I mean, this is, again, small increment, just two more holes, different place for the pins, and the tool holes on the tool post are already, uh, uh, the pin holes are already there. So it's not exactly rocket science. And uh, I'll be getting to it. So there you go. That's the update on the... um, tool post and i think we've done it we've we've run the list if you guys have any questions pop them in the chat if we don't 
if we don't have any new topics here, we're going to wrap it up because it is, in fact, 1403 on the East Coast. And uh, it was so nice to hear uh, hear from Mike from the Queen Mary. Now we have to go search on where the Queen Mary is because I have no idea what you did, Mike. Did you go on a vacation? Did you apply? Did you put the paperwork in for your vacation time? <laughs> K-Bonk says nanu nanu. All right. Well, I have my homework. It was nice uh, seeing everybody. Based on the concurrent viewer count, which I'm watching over here, uh, we had a light turnout today because I believe today is a holiday. So uh, that's totally cool. And we look forward to seeing everybody who wasn't here live today, maybe live next week. Have an awesome Sunday. Be safe. Go do something fun and make something. And we'll see you guys next week on PFG Live.